Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. This week, I chat with repeat guest, Ethan Vera, head of finance at Luxor Technologies, a US-based compute power company focused on proof of work crypto mining. The topic for this episode is about the intersection between Bitcoin mining and DeFi. It's a theme that's flying under the radar for most, but I think worth diving into as the Bitcoin mining industry becomes more accessible to the masses. We chat about the emergence of hash rate tokens as core to the financialization of mining hash power. Ethan explains what the new Binance and Pool and hash rate tokens are and how they're unlike controversial cloud mining contracts. Also make sure to learn about some valuation frameworks Ethan recommends for pricing hash rate. The topics discussed in this episode are nicely summarized in Ethan's new article titled Bitcoin Mining Meets DeFi. You can find it in the show notes below. As always, thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Ethan, thanks so much for hopping on Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really excited to talk about, you know, mining and DeFi today. Yeah, it's been a long time since Crypto Unstacked has focused on mining. DeFi really has taken over, I feel like, all of our mindshare over the past six to nine months. And so when you approached me with the idea of writing up the topic of mining meets DeFi, I thought really it's the perfect bridge to work in both narratives. So really hopefully today what we'll do is get a deep dive on what's been happening in the mining community and talk about the existence and rise of these hash rate tokens. To kind of start it off, I would love to have you talk about what does financializing hash rate mean? right? Does it boil down to just making a market for hash rate? How should people think about this? Yeah, that's, that's really probably the best place to start. And you start to see how the hash rate tokens actually have, are playing into a theme that we've been talking about in the mining space for the past year and a half. You know, financialization was probably, you know, the buzzword in mining in 2020. And uh, hash rate tokens is really a component of that. So it's really exciting to see that development. Uh, when it comes down to what that actually means, um, I think, you know, for the mining industry, uh, it's historically operated kind of like the Wild West, where there hasn't been a lot of products and financial services out there for miners. Miners will buy equipment, plug it in, earn the outcome, and then that's it, uh, you know, uh, and they're kind of planning there. But now you're starting to see more and more sophisticated miners come into the space. They want to start leveraging tools like hedging instruments, potentially like derivatives to, to lever up. And so the financialization of hash rate really allows them to turn uh, their commodity they produce, which is hash rate, into all these derivative instruments that they can then uh, leverage for various needs at the mining farm level. And so what this will allow uh, mining farms to do basically is be more long-term focused. They'll be able to hedge out some of their future cash flows. Um, it'll allow buyers to come in and access a really interesting asset class being hash rate and ultimately allow a new industry to flourish around hash rate as an asset class. So um, that's a pretty broad overview, but we can, I guess, jump into some of the specifics uh, throughout the podcast here. Yeah. Why do you think it's been so hard to bootstrap a market for hash rate, right? I feel like the question is always on sort of how do we get buyers interested? So up until this point, we really haven't seen a liquid market for hash rate. Why is that? 
I think it's just really takes time to develop these markets. And so there are a few project teams, including my company, Luxor, uh, working on physically delivered uh, marketplaces for Hashrate. But Hashrate is an incredibly hard asset, uh, you know, to build markets for because of its ephemeral nature. It's like electricity where uh, you need to use it right away, you know, to find the stratum enabled endpoint right away or else you lose it. And so the physically delivered component is actually quite tough and it will require a few years of development to make these markets robust. But I think on the cash settled or tokenized or virtual side, I think that's where you can start to see innovation a bit quicker in the space because it doesn't require those uh, infrastructure systems. And so we've seen a few of those projects launch to date, including like brokered contract as well as FTX difficulty futures, but neither really gained traction. And I think the two new hash rate tokens that came to market are going to be the first ones uh, that will really gather a lot of buy side interest. We've seen the Binance hash rate token trade at an average daily volume of around 23 million, pool in somewhere around three to four million. So we're starting to gain more traction here, but I think it's going to be a very long process because hash rate's an entirely new asset class. And so it's not an asset where you can just like build a product and then leave it and hope people come to it. You have to go to institutions, to traders and start educating them on hash rate in order to start uh, gathering long-term volume and, and interest in it. So I think it's a work in progress. I would say um, it started last year, but it's going to be potentially like a five to 10 year uh, process of really gathering interest in this entirely new commodity. I think it's incredible that we can start to talk about hash rate as an asset class, because I feel like not too long ago, we we're all just trying to justify crypto as an asset class, right? So, you know, with a wave of institutions coming in, I feel like that education level is kind of still on the how do you value Bitcoin, for example, or Ethereum versus, you know, some type of commodity like gold or silver. And when it comes to hash rate, it's kind of going one layer deeper and trying to understand, okay, like once you open up your understanding to Bitcoin, it's like, how does it actually work? And that's when the mining uh, sort of mindset comes in. And so I think the overarching theme for hash rate tokens is that it brings this type of exchange grade liquidity to Bitcoin mining, which is if you read the Binance hash rate token white paper, it talks about that, right? And historically we've seen hash rate, as you mentioned, being exchanged and, and brokered through over the counter, bilateral contracts. But for hash rate tokens, it's supposed to be the case that you don't necessarily need to just trust one counterparty. Am I right to say that? Or is there still some level of trust you need to have with the issuer of these hash rate tokens? Yeah, it's a different counterparty risk for sure, depending on how the hash rate token set up. So in the case of Binance, Binance Mining Pool launched uh, early 2020, which I think you also covered on, on your podcast, but they don't actually own a lot of their own mining farms. And so uh, the hash rate that's provided into collateralizing these tokens is actually uh, aggregated from various different miners. And so uh, your counterparty risk change is from uh, the traditional kind of OTC brokered or bilateral agreement to more of a, a marketplace where people like Genesis Mining are now contributing hash rate to collateralize these tokens. So the counterparty risk does change. I think that, you know, the risk still does exist, but just uh, in a different way. And so as a buyer, you need to kind of assess that risk and determine, you know, what potential like reward you need uh, to take on that risk is. Tokenizing these Bitcoin hash rate power, one goal is to bring mining exposure 
to the masses, right? You're not supposed to need to have all of the hardware and equipment, all the headache that comes with operating a mining farm to mine Bitcoin. Can you talk a bit about how holding hash rate is different than running a mining operation? Or even you can talk about how it's different from something like cloud mining, for example, which has been fairly popular ever since I think Genesis mining came online. This was back in 2000, what? 13, 2014. Yeah. 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 So I guess it's two very distinct things. Uh, One is actually producing the hash rate, which you need specialized hardware for and the infrastructure for. And in 2013, you could go and plug your laptop in and then GPU and start mining Bitcoin. But in today's more institutionalized mining ecosystem, you need a lot of capital expenditure to go and buy a facility, buy the land, install the equipment, which is incredibly expensive. And so really it's becoming a game of who's the largest player and who can get access to machines and the best uh, forms of power uh, for the cheapest. And so it's hard for anyone to come in and, and start competing in the mining hash rate production space because of that barriers to entry. And so that's why products that offer purchasing hash rate without actually investing in the infrastructure level is attractive. Cloud mining gets a bad rep from the entire industry because of the many scams that existed and potentially, uh, you know, preying on retail in regards to hash rate pricing. But at the end of the day, it's been extremely popular. Uh, we've seen various um, uh, cloud mining platforms really uh, boom, whether they're legit ones like Genesis Mining and Bitdeer, or even ones that, are, you know, might be a bit more sketchy. And so it's clear that people actually value uh, being able to purchase the output of hash rate without actually having to invest in the equipment themselves. And so hash rate tokens is really, you know, another example of uh, a way somebody can get exposure to hash rate without having to deal with the infrastructure side, the equipment, and can place a directional bet on hash rate. I think it's there's a few like key distinctions um, to cloud mining. Uh, you mentioned like uh, exchange liquidity and, and uh, basically at any point in time, you can exit your, your position on a hash rate token versus cloud mining. It's incredibly hard to exit that. You'd have to go negotiate with somebody in a Telegram chat. Hey, do you want to buy this cloud mining contract for me? And uh, that would just be a really tough task to do. So um, that's really the, the, uh, a large value of hash rate tokens compared to cloud mining. But there's other things too around governance, like we're seeing with the Mars protocol, physical delivery aspect. Uh, sometimes cloud mining is physically delivered versus hash rate token, obviously no physical delivery happens. So I think it's a, it's a really exciting uh, development in, in the side of the market. And uh, you know, wrapping this up to kind of buyers of hash rate, I think a lot of trading desks in the future are gonna want to access hash rate and they're not gonna want to invest in equipment and in infrastructure. They're gonna just wanna acquire the output being hash rate. And so tokenized hash rate or physically delivered futures and forwards or cash settled futures and forwards, I think are all gonna be incredibly interesting to them. And you think that is going to be of interest kind of in addition to having direct ownership of the underlying asset Bitcoin? Or you think this is sort of the main proxy that institutions are going to look to in the future once there is more of an established and mature hash rate market? It's hard to say on one side, uh, what you're referring to earlier, where basically if Bitcoin's level one, hash rate might be level two. And so Mm -hmm. you need to kind of educate yourself on Bitcoin first, which is already a tough task, and then educate yourself on hash rate. So you could make the case that the traders of hash rate will already be uh, educated on Bitcoin and be trading, you know, Bitcoin options. Um, But on the other hand, I think hash rate itself is a commodity that more resembles like oil or electricity. And so 
Hashrate could actually be kind of a gateway into Bitcoin and cryptocurrency because mm. uh, commodity traders in, say, Houston or Chicago, they're already used to trading commodities. And um, compute power being hash rate could be very interesting for them to trade, you know, more so than Bitcoin, which is seen more as kind of, you know, a store value currency. They may be more used to trading the commodity side. And so they may want to trade compute power as the new form of commodity. And that will be kind of their gateway into Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So you mentioned pricing earlier of these tokens. Can you talk through your valuation framework for thinking about hash rate tokens? Because again, it's a new asset class, right? You can just sort of put out numbers there and the average Joe is not going to know whether the price of the current Binance hash rate token or pool and hash rate token is the right price, right? If they're prioritizing convenience, they might just want to have access to it regardless of what the price is. But from another angle, as someone who is a miner uh, working in the space, how do you value these type of hash rate tokens? This has probably been the area I focus on the most uh, when it comes to the hash rate tokens. And in the short term, I would say that there's probably no really great way to value it. Uh, as we've seen in DeFi, there's like incredible large swings due to momentum. And so if you're using fundamental analysis on a hash rate token and trading it for the short term, uh, your thesis may not play out because uh, the market moves in uh, very variable uh, directions. But I think you know, there are some frameworks that you can use to think about how these tokens should be valued in the long term. Um, because they're physically, uh, you know, they're in the physical world and they create real output. And so you can actually use pretty traditional valuation methods on these tokens to start deriving what you think would be a reasonable token price. Um, the first method I'd use would be like a discounted cash flow or like an IRR strategy. And so basically looking at the cost of these tokens as well as the projected revenue and then your own uh, discount rate and then discounting that back for the net present value of the cash flows. And so um, you can do that on the Binance and, and Poolin' token where you look at the potential payout of these and then you look at your cost of capital and then you can discount it back and determine what you think would be a reasonable price for that token. The second methodology I'd look at is basically benchmarking it to the ASIC markets. So for Poolin's example, you're buying a terahash of hash rate. You could also go to the ASIC markets and buy a, a machine that produces 110 terahash. And so you can start comparing that dollars per terahash from the token side to the ASIC side to start seeing what's in the realm of reasonable. And so for example, right now, Poolin's token is trading at about a 60% premium to ASIC markets, mm, um, wow. which could make sense going back to the idea of like exchange liquidity. Uh, which you obviously don't have on the ASIC markets, at least not as much. And so that's probably a liquidity premium. But, you know, making sure that you're checking it to the ASIC markets and seeing that it's somewhat reasonable. For example, Binance's uh, token is trading at about 10 times that. So there's quite a quite a big uh, gap in uh, Binance's hash rate token to, to the physical world. And then the last methodology that I like is the reflexivity in hash power, which was proposed by Leo Zhang. It's a pretty complex framework to work through, so I'd, I'd recommend anyone go read it. And you know, I guess uh, you'll post it in the show notes, but using three different methodologies as a framework for how you should think about the value long term is, is a great way to approach it. 
Yeah, so going back to your second point, which is about benchmarking it to the ASIC market, can you give our audience some context on what's happening in the ASIC market in terms of the supply constraint that we're seeing and why now more than ever, it sort of makes sense to be able to access Bitcoin mining through these hash rate tokens versus just outright buying equipment? Yeah, this has really been the the theme of 2021 thus far is how the ASIC markets have performed. So basically, there are really only a few manufacturers in the ASIC markets. Bitmain and What's Miner are kind of the tier one. And then you have Canon as tier two. And then a tier three would be like Inosilicon, uh, Ebang, Strongyu. Um, but the supply side is extremely tight right now. And we're starting to get in an era where uh, Bitcoin price quickly outpaced uh, the ability to build machines. And so demand for machines has skyrocketed while supply has stayed somewhat mm. constrained. And so now if you approach a manufacturer, you can only acquire machines nine to 10 months out. So right now they're taking orders for September, 2021 at earliest. Uh, oftentimes you may not even be able to get them until 2022. And so they're really hard to access right now. And so uh, you know, going via the hash rate route, which is acquiring hash rate today, instead of waiting uh, 10 to 12 months to get your hands on equipment could be more attractive in this mining cycle. In Leo Zhang's piece, he also kind of goes through the various mining cycles. And right now I, I would say that we're in resemblance of a gold rush mining cycle. And so, you know, in periods like this, it may make sense um, to, to stay a little bit more cautious on the ASIC markets, just given uh, the premium that you're paying for those ASICs and, and start to play in some of the hash rate spaces. And uh, just kind of wrapping up this point, uh, we track all of this ASIC data on hashrateindex.com. Uh, so we're, we're pretty close to the broker markets. We help our, our clients acquire machines and we, we track all of the various uh, venue that these ASICs are traded on. And so we display all the data on that website. And um, I'm looking at the data uh, daily. Uh, we also display it uh, weekly on the site. So how does that work? I'm, I'm very curious, you know, how you aggregate uh, all of this information, is it the case that it's like quite easy to do um, because people are more open about uh, sort of this information around the ASIC market? What was it like building up this database? For the ASIC uh, data specifically, this was always like a black box. I remember when I got into mining back in 2017, you couldn't find anything about ASIC pricing. You could go to the manufacturer website and, and see a price. You could maybe go on like a Bitcoin talk forum and see like a couple postings, but there, there's no comprehensive view on how much are these ASICs trading at. And so uh, earlier in 2020, uh, we decided that uh, it, would, it would make sense to bring more transparency to the side of the industry. And so we wanted to build uh, a product that basically aggregated all the different uh, sources of ASIC pricing data, manufacturers, websites, telegram groups, WeChat groups, uh, things like uh, Alibaba, um, various other forums to aggregate all those pricing in, into one analysis. Um, I would say that the analysis should mostly be used to like uh, check the market. It's it's never like 100% accurate, mostly because there's a lot of private deals that get negotiated that are not on these uh, forums. But um, you know, overall, it can really give you like a sentiment of where the ASIC markets are. I, I hope that it's been useful for people. It's a free analysis, so you know, it's starting to be used in things like even ASIC financiers are now looking at it to see, okay, how much uh, are these ASICs worth in terms of collateral, um, you know, when they're giving out loans and stuff like that. And I'm excited to see how this uh, continues to trend. Right. Yeah. Going back to the piece that you mentioned by Leo Zhang, uh, which I believe is called the alchemy of hash power. 
And apparently it's a series. This one specifically that you're referencing is part two in this series. He talks about why the hash power market is not quite efficient and, and why that's giving opportunities for things like this hash rate token to come about. And so I would love for you to just talk about, you know, why is it the case that the hash power market hasn't been efficient and whether over the past three years that you've been in the mining market, um, whether you, you've seen that go towards more efficiency? Yeah, I don't want to do him a disservice. So would definitely recommend everyone read his piece too, because he, he, he lays it out so perfectly. And he talks a lot about the expectation of hashing hash power, which no one really talked about before that. Um, and you're really starting to see it now with public companies announcing purchases 12 months out and uh, the demand for future hash rate starting to really become public. But I think to your question on the markets today, I think it's mostly just because of all the, the barriers that exist. It's really hard to acquire machines. It's really hard to sell them. And so uh, given those barriers, uh, it's just really hard to, to value hash power uh, you know, at the present. And so marketplaces that have more liquidity, things like the pool and hash rate token, I think will start to make these markets more efficient and, and start to price hash power a bit better, given that they, they're just lower barriers to entry to buy and sell and, and arbitrage out different opportunities, whereas before, uh, you know, it's just very disjointed. And so I think that is going to start to change in 2021, 2022. These markets are going to become a, a little bit more efficient. In the article that you will be publishing uh, soon, which, which will really give a nice framework for people to think about these hash rate tokens, um, you also point to this idea of hash power reflexivity, right? Which is, uh, again, based on Leo's uh, paper there. Can you talk through why the hash rate market is recursive? Because I think that will make it clearer to our audience as to why hash power is valued the way it's valued, given a number of variables. So can you talk through that? For sure. And uh, I would say that this is like a, a framework to use. No single framework can really ho help you accurately price uh, any of this hash power or tokens. Uh, it's really just like an additional tool um, that you as an, an valuation analyst or looking at these tokens can use. But really it comes down to the various components of what goes into mining revenue. And so that's things like uh, the transaction fees on the network, uh, how much hash power is being added, which results in the difficulty level uh, Bitcoin price. Um, but then it adds a whole new uh, other layer of things like uh, if you get more sophisticated than that, like profit switching or even like how much people are willing to pay for that hash power itself. And uh, each of these uh, individual inputs um, impact the entire uh, market and, and pretty much every participant, uh, if you're adding machines to the market or if you're buying hash rate tokens or if you're financing machines um, or if you're offering pool services at a lower fee, every single thing uh, impacts the entire market. And so it's really this ecosystem of ever-changing um, dynamics in the hash power market that's kind of impacted by all of these factors. And so I think it's like it's a really interesting way to look at it. And um, yeah, just say, again, kind of defer to, to his analysis because uh, he puts it so much better than I do. Great. I think now would be a great time to dive deeper in the two hash rate tokens on the market right now, which are again from Binance and Poolin. Binance hash rate token is called BTC standard hash rate token or BTCST for short. And the standard hash rate token protocol aims to create an efficient market for Bitcoin's mining power. And as the name of the token suggests, 
each BTCST is collateralized by standardized mining power. Um, and by staking these tokens as the holder, you would be entitled to perpetual Bitcoin mining rewards, right? By receiving these sort of daily Bitcoin distributions based on the sort of mining power that you own that state in that pool. So in terms of how this token is priced right now in terms of the, the market pricing, can you talk a bit about whether you think it's overvalued or undervalued? What's your model telling you as it relates to the Bitcoin standard hash rate token? Yeah, going back to some of the valuation methodologies that we talked about earlier, uh, you know, the DCF, and then as well as like the ASIC comparison. Um, so talking through the ASIC uh, comparison to start. So the BTC ST token is trading at around $72 right now. Um, and that's for every uh, 0.1 terahash of real hash rate power. So um, to standard that, standardize that to one terahash, because that's kind of the common metric. Um, that would be trading at around like $720, $730 a terahash. And so you can start see a large um, gap between what the ASIC markets are trading at, which is around that $70 range, and what uh, BTC ST is trading at, which is above $700. So just based on that sole framework, I think you could say that it's slightly overvalued compared to ASIC markets. You could go to buy a machine at a much lower cost per terahash than you could uh, go to acquire that hash rate token. And then, you know, on the future cash flow side, um, this really comes down to how you view the future hash rate going, because you need to make assumptions on things like the network difficulty, you know, Bitcoin price, transaction fees moving forward. But if you assume like a reasonable growth rate of hash rate, let's call it like 40% annualized and maybe a 30% Bitcoin price appreciation, the token should be really worth like $100 a terahash, which for Bitcoin BTC ST, which is 0.1 terahash, uh, it should be around like $10. So I, I don't think that the the market is fairly pricing this token yet. I think it's due for a large correction here. I forget if I asked you earlier, um, but I think it's an important point, which is how is Binance sourcing or acquiring this Bitcoin mining power to their pool? So they initially paired up with a project team that owns a mining farm and supplied the initial hash rate for it. Uh, they've now let in, I think, another five participants to supply that hash rate including uh, Genesis Mining and some really other reputable names in China. So they're partnering with very reputable names to bring in that hash rate and pretty much either fully or over collateralize the contracts or I guess the tokens in this case. And so you kind of have to trust them as a centralized entity, although it's labeled as a DeFi project. This part of the system is very centralized. Binance Pool is responsible for gathering hash rate. Um, basically checking the efficiency of that hash rate to make sure it's 60 joules per terahash, issuing tokens and auditing that hash rate. And so th that part of the entire token process is centralized around Binance Mining Pool. I'm starting to wonder, you know, in terms of this DeFi ethos, you know, how something like BTC ST really plays into the real, I guess, DeFi community in the sense that you know, in terms of users um, and holders of the tokens, are they going to be the so-called DeFi native users or are they going to be more folks from the, you know, mining community who have historically uh, been buying cloud mining contracts, right? Which side of the market do you think is more drawn to this hash rate token from the get-go? 
I think as of now, it's mostly from the traditional Binance uh, user base. And so if you go into the BTC, SD, like Telegram or WeChat groups, you'll, you'll see that um, it's mostly just basically them bringing over their existing trading user base, uh, whether it's traders on DeFi projects or other projects listed on Binance. And that's kind mm -hmm. of how they bootstrap liquidity. And in the first day of trading, they're at like 120 uh, million in volume. And, and they've still averaged 20 million in, in volume uh, since inception. So I think they did a really good job bootstrapping it with their existing community. But in the long run, I think they should be targeting uh, the people that do buy cloud mining contracts because in some ways, hash rate tokens are a better way to get uh, exposure to hash rate than cloud mining contracts, given that liquidity. Um, but I think, you know, uh, from the onset, they've just basically leveraged their existing user base. But is this available to all users, right? Because Binance also geofences. So I'm wondering if that plays into the sorts of accessibility um, to new Binance products, which include this hash rate token and whether that might still be a challenge for users who are restricted to only being able to use, you know, certain Binance products or like a certain Binance website, for example. I don't know if that's something that you guys have talked about within the mining space, but it's just sort of the geographical accessibility of these hash rate tokens and whether I guess a pool in which is not an exchange um, is sort of better off taking advantage of because they don't, you know, geofence any of their users. Yeah. I think uh, this is like a, a big legal question and maybe more long-term, but I think, you know, if you look at BTCST and Poolin's token PBTC35A, you could definitely make the case that both are securities. And so definitely in, in the views of uh, U.S. regulators. And so um, I don't think long-term U.S. institutions are going to be trading unregulated securities. The Chicago prop trading firms were like trading on like Deribit a lot at the start. But then I think over time, they're starting to trade on more onshore and regulated venues. I think that's going to continue to be the trend in uh, crypto and mining, where long-term uh, people are going to default to onshore entities, um, while historically it was kind of like a free-for-all on what they what they used to trade. And so I think long-term, uh, there's still opportunity to launch these products for uh, U.S. institutions, which Luxor is uh, you know trying to do long-term. Um, but for now, I think uh, anyone can really trade it if they want. It, it, it's pretty easy to circumvent uh, various uh, uh, geographic barriers. If you're in crypto, you know how to do it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so I guess for B2CSD in specific, I know I, I bought it on the uh, global exchange uh, because I'm not a, a US-based person. And you can just go in and buy it straight on Binance's website. On uh, Poolin's case, you can go and buy it on Uniswap, which obviously can be accessed anywhere in the world. So it's not hard to buy those tokens, whether you're based in the US or otherwise. Yeah, just on that point of pooling, can you talk about how the Poolin hash rate token is structured differently from this Binance hash rate token? Yeah, th there's a lot of differences, which is funny because they actually launched on the same day. I don't know if they planned it or if like one of them was planning a week <laughs> later and they're like, okay, let's just, let's just launch it today, given the other one did. Um, but they both launched on, launched on January 13th of uh, uh, this year. Uh, Poolin took a bit of a different approach. Um, so they, they supply all the hash rate themselves. They obviously own a lot of large mining operations. And so they can fully collateralize hash rate tokens just through their own operations. Um, also, the, the cost structure is different, different electricity fee, efficiency rate. Um, and it also represents one terahash instead of 0 0.1. 
And so that really needs to be taken in consideration when you're looking at the two tokens that Poolin's token represents 10 times the amount of hash rate as Binance's. Um, but then the way they built it is also different. So they built it on Uniswap, um, whereas you know Binance's token, uh, the project team acts as a market maker. In the case of Poolin's, uh, using Uniswap, they kind of take advantage of that automated market making and, and pool liquidity. Um, mm -hmm. And they also have a, a governance token attached to it as well. So they released not only a hash rate token, PBTC35A, but also a governance token uh, called Mars, which if you think of like uh, the bigger picture, Mars will be like the governance token over all these various hash rate tokens. And so PBTC35A is their first token at 35 joules per terahash, but they may launch in the future something like, you know, 30 joules per terahash or 25. And so Mars is kind of that governance uh, layer above uh, all these different hash rate tokens. And, and to get to the trading point, uh, basically uh, to, to buy these tokens, you need to just head over to Uniswap, connect your MetaMask, uh, buy these tokens. Mm -hmm. I think it's a USDT pair or maybe an ETH pair too. Um, get it and then start staking it. And if you stake your uh, PBTC35A uh, plus USDT, then you can start getting output of wrapped Bitcoin as well as their Mars token. And you can use that and stake it on a lending platform, right? And, you know, get funds out of that and then yield farm. I mean, there's, there's so many different layers um, to how you can use all of these tokens, which I think gets to that composability aspect, right? Which mining is trying to take advantage of now. You know, you can not only participate in the mining ecosystem, but all of the activity that's happening in DeFi right now. What are some of the main pushbacks you're hearing from all of these various chat groups you're in, you know, deep within the mining community? What are the skeptics telling you right now? Maybe I'd caveat this by saying my mining group uh, tends to lean more towards like Bitcoin Maxi. And so I, I'm sure there's other various mining groups out there, uh, maybe in China that are probably, you know, more open to DeFi and some of the, the innovations being built on Ethereum. Um, but definitely like the, the North American mining community is heavily favored towards Bitcoin. And so uh, systems that are built on top of Ethereum um, and, you know, part of this DeFi craze, high yields, uh, high issuance of new tokens, et cetera, um, is, is met with a lot of uh, skepticism uh, from our mining community. And so a lot of people will just write it off immediately. Uh, some of the largest mm. you know, miners in North America immediately will kind of be like, this token is, is not worth it given it's built on DeFi. And so that itself, I think, is like a major hurdle uh, for them to get over to start engaging with the North American mining community. But there's also a lot of like details that still need to be worked out. And um, there's a lot of complexity to these things. For example, uh, each hash rate token is like set to a certain efficiency level. Poolins is 35 joules per terahash, Binance is 60 joules per terahash. Um, and as a miner, you know, it's really hard to get like an aggregated hash rate that all has the same efficiency because these machines say have 65 joules per terahash or 58, and you need to start like merging machines and like blend them uh, to get that 60 or 35 joules per terahash. And so that kind of like staging uh, system is a little bit um, kind of unclear at this stage and hopefully like pool or Binance mm -hmm. does an AMA and talks through all this, but, um, there's other considerations too. Like what happens if that hash rate goes offline? What, what happens to the tokens? Are they burned or like, what, what's the case there? Um, how do we verify that that hash rate, uh, you know, is fully online and, uh, yeah, what, what is the recourse if it isn't? 
Um, then there's like very like granular details like Binance says there's a 10% downtime of the, the hash rate output per year. What does that really mean? Right, right. Do, do costs or costs still incurred at that time? Or is it just like basically you don't get any revenue or costs at that time? So th there's all these things that are still kind of question marks in people's head that I think if they went on um, and really explained, maybe they can come on the podcast and go through all these, uh, you know, people would start it, to become yeah. more comfortable mm -hmm. with it. Yeah. So how is that efficiency determined? Sorry, I don't, I don't understand how that's calculated and why it's different, you know, for the various mining pools. Yeah. And really efficiency is really important piece of both hash rate tokens and mining in general. The better equipment you have, the lower the joules per terahash or the higher the efficiency is. And so for every, you know, dollar worth of electricity you spend, you can get more revenue from because you're burning less electricity to produce that hash rate. And so that's why it's kind of been a race to decrease the chip size of these uh, machines, uh, decrease mm -hmm. the, the, the uh, power consumption versus hash rate, and ultimately create more profitable machines. So if you had a Bitmain uh, newest gen machine, you know, the S19 Pro versus the Bitmain S9 from 2016, the S19 Pro is just a better machine. It's going to make you more money uh, for every dollar of cost. Right. And so uh, taking that into consideration in these hash rate tokens is really important in determining um, things like uh, the NPV of the future value of the cash flows, as well as like comparing it to ASIC markets. This part is pretty complex. So basically, each machine has its own efficiency. And so uh, for, say, Binance to start gathering a standardized efficiency across all hash rate tokens, they need to take various different machines and blend them together to get this 60 joules per terahash. And so a very simple example would be like, Let's say they have two machines, one is 55 and one is 65. They could put those two together to now have like a 60 uh, joules per terahash uh, efficiency pool. And so before tokens get issued, Binance and Poolin basically have this like staging pool uh, where they gather this hash rate, make sure the efficiency is the right. And then once the efficiency is checked and actually matches the hash rate token specifications, then it gets added, which is like... Wow, it is a bit of alchemy <laughs> on the back end. Okay, interesting, interesting. I guess pulling out from the hash rate token market, which is really just at its genesis right now from Binance and Poolin, what are some other macro themes within mining that our audience should be aware of that perhaps, you know, Luxor is really interested in right now, um, or kind of like some things to expect down the line for those who might be newer to the mining uh, community. What are some things that excite you? So many things. <laughs> we could have another podcast on this. We talked about already, but the financialization of hash rate. So, you know, hash rate tokens being one, but I'm really excited to see other products develop and Luxor will hopefully play a role in this too. Building things like cash shuttled futures and forwards, uh, you know, regulated in the US, I think is going to be incredibly interesting and continuing to offer miners the ability to hedge. Right now, these hash rate tokens actually don't provide miners the ability to hedge uh, besides maybe Binance's partners, but the average miner can't just come in and use these tokens as a way to, to sell forward some of their hash rates. Mm -hmm. So I think those products are going to be really exciting and they're going to be the theme of like late 2021, 2022. Um, some of the other themes really excited about are um, the different avenues for companies to raise capital. And what's really got the spotlight the past like three months is public mining companies. So there's 28 uh, public mining companies that are listed on 
um, NASDAQ, uh, Toronto Stock Exchange, um, the London Exchange. And so um, they were kind of out of favor last year because the public markets were so tough on raising capital. But now you're starting to see the capital markets, the public capital markets become the best avenue for financing. Companies like Riot Blockchain or Marathon Group or Argo Blockchain can now uh, go to market and raise incredibly large amounts of money and really expand their operations. Marathon made a, a headline that they've now purchased uh, you know, the future hash rate of over 10 exahash. Uh, how long that will be delivered in, I'm not sure, uh, but it's definitely clear that the public markets are, uh, in today's system, the most favorable uh, venue for, for raising uh, capital to expand. Um, and then I guess a more interesting dynamic to that too is like, how do these companies actually get valued? And these companies are being valued right yeah. now on their future hash rate. So they'll announce like a large purchase. They'll announce, okay, we're going to be producing X amount of exahash in a year's time. And then their valuation gets tied to that. And then uh, if their valuation gets pumped up, they can raise, you know, equity cheaper again, and then just continue the cycle. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, it's going to be an exciting time for the public markets and, um, you know, raising uh, capital in general. Sorry, I'm just like kind of nerding out on a lot of these topics, but I think there's just so many exciting things in, in mining right now. When it comes to investing in these public companies, raising capital, there's always this uncertainty when it comes to market conditions, right? Because you can say we're going to be producing this amount of exahash, is it? But, you know, let's say Bitcoin corrects 50%. Then at that point, once they've raised capital, but they're not able to meet their output, then what happens, right, in terms of the valuation? You basically need to, I guess, reprice the previous round. I mean, just from an investor's perspective, how do you get to a point where you do have these traditional investors coming in, understanding, you know, the risks that they are walking into when they're investing in a crypto mining company? Yeah, this is all themes that have played out before. In early 2018, late 2017, like the public markets were on fire. And then you saw two years of just like a slaughter of these public mining companies. And so it, it wasn't great times. Like everyone on the Canadian uh, stock exchange was trading like sub 100 mil for like large operations, in some cases like sub 10 million market cap. And so that's a very feasible situation where Bitcoin price either stays flat or declines, but hash rate mm -hmm. continues to grow because they've purchased so many orders. Everyone's already bought out Bitmain and what's minor supply and pretty much for the next 14, like 16 months, like they already have like orders on, on the books. And so if Bitcoin doesn't continue to increase uh, the same way hash rate does, you're going to start to see a huge decline in future revenue. And so an exit hash next year starts to look a lot less profitable than it does today. I think you will see in that case, a large correction of these public mining companies. They're pretty highly valued right now. In some cases, they're valued at uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars for current petahash and tens of thousands of dollars for future petahash. And so... Um, you know, in the case of a bear market, they could be in it for a huge correction. So would definitely uh, err on the side of caution there. But I do think mm -hmm. like public mining companies are an interesting way for people to gain exposure to mining because uh, going back to our conversation earlier, it's really hard to set up your own facility. And the big players have an advantage on ASIC procurement, getting access to cheap power, better operations. And so by pooling together capital and, and investing in these companies, I think it's potentially a better approach than going out on your own and, you know, not being able to get good pricing on ASICs, not being able to acquire like cheap uh, forms of power. So I do think like, mm -hmm. you know, the theme of investing in public mining companies is good for retail investors, uh, but it just comes down to like, uh, is this the right time to invest?
invest in it now, given that the market is pretty highly valued right now. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I did want to wrap up with uh, one point that you mentioned earlier, which is your work with enterprises, right? Like that's how I think you guys have been able to set yourself apart as a mining pool is kind of working on these partnerships with enterprises uh, looking to get exposure into Bitcoin mining. What are those conversations like right now? Or you can talk about how they've evolved since you guys set out to work on this sort of enterprise solution. This was a realization in 2019 where traditionally the, the mining industry was run by retail. And so as a mining pool or any mining uh, services company, you had to focus on retail. But that really flipped in 2019 and has continued to run that path where institutions and, and large enterprises are making up the majority of hash rate these days. Um, I don't have the exact numbers, but I would say that, I guess, across mining pools, it seems like the top like 10% of, of miners, individual companies, make up pretty much every uh, hash that they have, 95% plus of the hash rate. Um, and so focusing on those types of offerings, I think, is incredibly important for not only Luxor, but also uh, any any company offering services to miners. And so at Luxor, we really tried to take an approach of what are the, the value needs of, the, of these companies? And if that's things like service license agreements, better and more transparent hash rate liquidation engines, or just like better customer service, like how can we provide that level of uh, value to those institutions? And how does that differ from retail? And so we've tried to kind of flip Luxor on its head from a retail-focused company to institutional-focused. An example of that would be like our relationship with Argo Blockchain, uh, the publicly listed UK miner. Basically, we, we tried to create a product that would be valuable uh, to institutions like them. And we created a profit-switching algorithm that uh, delivers better return for their hash rate. So it optimizes the value they can sell hash rate for and also increases the transparency of what they're mining at that time and better data around that. And so we partnered with Argo on that early 2020, and then they ended up in actually investing into Luxor at the end of 2020. So for us, that was good product validation. And we hope to start bringing uh, increased amount of those types of products to institutions, because I think in North America specifically, there is the demand for uh, better hash rate liquidation engines, uh, more transparency, better agreements, service license agreements. Maybe eventually it'll get to SOC audit, but not for now. But, you know, it's definitely heading in that direction. Yeah, basically servicing this bundled product or this bundled offering, which I think is very common right now within the crypto trading space as well. People don't just want to go to one counterparty who will only execute a certain number of coins, right? They also want to go to a counterparty that can facilitate uh, collateralized loans um, or can help them on a number of various, let's say, derivatives trading uh, executions as well, right? So people are looking for this sort of one-stop shop solution simply because there's so much going on and they can just go to one party who can help them, you know, help them maneuver their way into something like mining. Why wouldn't they take advantage of that partnership, right? So good on you guys uh, yeah. for you know getting a fresh round of capital uh, to build out your team, your headcount. Um, it's it's been really great to see you guys grow in that respect, uh, but also in content as well, which I think is super super important in the crypto space. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about the newsletter that you publish? I think it's a weekly newsletter. Yeah, for sure. And I'll send you over the link uh, for the show notes. Um, but we started writing this mining newsletter 
uh, I guess it would have been almost a year ago now, uh, really focused on what I think is missing from the mining space, which is commentary on mining economics. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone's kind of looking at the numbers, but there's not a lot of commentary out there. So we try and put our view on, okay, what's happening to hash rate, um, network hash rate, the difficulty level, uh, transaction fees, and making sure that people are following the kind of the key themes around uh, the economics of mining, but then also aggregating industry news. Um, there's a lot of good industry news out there. Uh, people like uh, Zach Wall at Coindesk are doing a great job covering the industry. Uh, Wolfie Zhao obviously has been a longtime favorite, um, but mm -hmm. we wanted to kind of aggregate a lot of the research they're doing and, and deliver it into people's inboxes. And so, yeah, bi-weekly we write a, a mining newsletter um, and we incorporate a lot of the data too that we display in hashrateindex.com, which is things like how the ASIC markets are trading or how the value of hash rate is trading over time and, and those types of economics. Excellent. Well, I'll, I'll drop the links in the show notes below. There's a lot of things that we referenced today. So hopefully that'll be helpful to you guys listening. You know, Ethan, I always learned so much from you when we chat. I'm so glad to have you on the show again um, and look forward to bringing you on very, very soon. So thanks so much for hopping on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was a lot of fun. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.